Good afternoon, happy holiday, and welcome to this Martin Luther King Jr. Day special edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. In August of 1956, during the Montgomery bus boycott, Dr. King addressed a gathering celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity in Buffalo, New York. His speech came to be known as his Birth of a New Age address. In it, he said, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Today, on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service, we'll meet some people for whom every day is a day of service and whose animating force and deep-seated passions are centered, as Dr. King said, in the broader concerns of humanity. A little later, I'll speak with two women who are helping refugees from Afghanistan adjust to their new lives in Baltimore, and a minister with an organization who's working to mediate conflicts among Baltimore youth. But we begin with Matt Hanna. He's the executive director of Next One Up, an academic enrichment program for middle and high school boys. He joins me on Zoom. Happy holiday, Matt. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So generally speaking, it's an academic enrichment program, but it's much, much more. Tell us about the kind of work you're doing with these middle and high school age young men. Sure. A lot of that, this work, the enrichment is, is filling in the gaps, you know, with, with students. When you look at middle school students in Baltimore City, a lot of them have a lack of access to school sports programs, um, after school academic support, and sometimes just a, a hot meal. Um, and for us at Next One Up, a workout, you know, the whole body and mind is really important to us. So we exist when school is closed. So evenings, weekends, and we run a great five week summer program that includes a lot of travel as well. Um, summer camp experiences, both sports and just outdoors, uh, everything from fishing to football, um, it's all there. And, and we just really try to do it through the eyes of these young men. We take a lot of feedback from them and their families. And they're all young men in Baltimore City that have you know some very significant and specific challenges to overcome. But they're all hardworking guys that want something better. Tell us a little bit about the kinds of challenges that some of these guys are, are uh, dealing with. I would say, you know, first and foremost, just the struggle that the city sees in, in terms of, um, you know, whether it's just public safety, you know, for students being able to just go to the park near their house and play basketball. Or, um, you know, a lot of times it could be um, a struggling school system, you know, it might be attending a public school that um, is is not performing well. Um, but we look at things, you know, kind of home, street and school, you know, what, what's going on in your house? You know, we have had students that have lived in residential housing programs, um, you know, or may have uh, lost their parents or been living with a relative. Um, we look at their street and where they live, you know, when you walk out your doors, there are healthy food options. Is there a, a safe place to go exercise? And then when you get to your school, that third component, what kind of education are you getting? What kind of support are you getting academically? We've seen a lot of really low graduation rates and matriculation to college, especially for young men of color in Baltimore is very low. Um, so we look at those three components and, and that's where we determine how we can support a child. And uh, the the folks that you're working with come from citywide uh, in, in geographically, or are they particular neighborhoods? I know you just uh, recently opened uh, a, a beautiful new office and uh, and center in Belvedere Square uh, up in, in North Baltimore. But uh, where do the where do the young men you're working with come from? 
we do recruit young men everywhere inside the Beltway, and uh, we get applications from all over the city. Um, it is a challenge. Now we're in North Baltimore. We do take a bigger focus in that, you know, central and north central Baltimore communities um, just for access when school is out, making sure students can get there. So it is really important that a student show up, shows up. So, um, but we, we uh, you know, never say no to a student that's applying and has an, an interest and a need. So they come from just about everywhere. And and how what's the application process? Who are you looking for? Uh, do you, do you have more applicants than you have room for in the program? Is it that kind of situation? We're hoping to get to that now with this facility open. We've always um, you know had a, a pretty full roster of students. We take twenty five young men a year um, starting in middle school, so we try to fill that roster up of twenty five kids per class. And um, there's been a lot of interest, and now with the facility opening, um, even more so. So it, it really is um, uh, for us identifying students similar to applying to college or to, to a high school. Um, they'll fill out an application. We'll meet the family. They're, you know, we'll meet them at their school. Really get to know them, and um, really for us is to figure out how bad do you want it. Are you willing to make a commitment three or four days a week to come to the facility? It's it's not optional. So when you join the program, we expect you to be there, and more importantly, we expect you to get better. So we want students to come in and say, look, I have these challenges, and we want to meet them where they're at, and and see them on the other side as they graduate high school and go off to college, um, and and say, hey, you know, we made you better, and you worked for it. So we're always looking for underdogs, and we're looking for kids that you know have significant challenges and say this program will help me so it's it's, it's a fun recruiting process because we're, we're looking for some some kids that really want it bad if you've just joined us it's midday i'm tom hall on this martin luther king jr day of service we're profiling three groups that do wonderful work in the community my first guest today matt Hanna. he's the executive director and founder of next one up an enrichment program for young men in the city of Baltimore. Their center is in Belvedere Square. So, Matt, um, when you when you have this, this group, this cohort of 25, are all the ages mixed? You go middle school to high school. There are a lot of times, you know, obviously the challenges for a 6th or 7th grader are going to be different than those for an 11th or 12th grader. Do, do the kids spend time together across ages, or do you have cohorts that are all uh, basically the same age? Yeah, great question. A little bit of uh, everything in the sense that um, there are a lot of collaborative moments, whether it's our, you know, annual Turkey Bowl football game, um, you know, where students mix by grade or, you know, whether it's community service events where students again will mix by grade. Um, but when it comes to the academics, we do it's it's higher intensity for middle school kids as we're trying to, uh, you know, maybe raise the bar, you know, get their grade levels up or improve their reading, um, you know, their social skills, their workforce development, you know, shaking hands and uh, making eye contact, all those those ground level things that are important right out the gates. Um, where our high school guys, almost like my own children, you know, as they grow, you hope you can back off a little bit. So as our guys grow older, you know, we do expect them to be in the center to come to their college counseling appointments. and and But we also expect them to have part-time jobs and to play sports. So as they get older, we'll pull back a little bit on their their weekly commitment to the program. Um, whereas the younger guys, it's it's uh, their hourly spend at the center is a little more intense. So we do taper a bit. And then as our young men go off to college or into the workforce, we stay right with them. So I run our alumni program. And um, as they grow at over the age of 18, our young alumni cohort is growing and growing. And um, so we do a lot of support, too, in terms of careers or, hey, I want to buy a home. Um, I'm interested in this job. Do you know what it's all about? Um, I'll do all the research and support them. So they really get a lot of love all along the way. And it does vary by age. And uh, speaking of employment opportunities, uh, you created some just recently in, of all places, Ocean City. You had a program down there uh, at the uh, at the beach uh, where uh, these folks get uh, employment, they get housing, uh, they make a few bucks, uh, and they get that l- life and work experience. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, we we never say no to opportunity. And, you know, we've always had folks come to us and say, hey, I have an idea. And, you know, one a couple of years ago was Ocean City. So summer at the beach and um, guys getting work at, working at, you know, with food vendors and water taxis and just the idea of getting out of town was really important. And, you know, that doesn't doesn't stop there. You know, we do um, we did a backpacking trip out to Utah last year. Um, again, the experience of getting out of Baltimore in the summer is is really what's most important. Um, Ocean City was was an idea we tried and and um, a lot of students had some really good impact and they came home with some money in their pocket and they learned how to live independently. And so that was really helpful. But, you know, so much of what we do um, that gets us out of the center and out of Baltimore is where we see the, like the major growth for our students. And I know you do uh, tutoring, coaching, uh, kind of mentoring. I mean, this this is uh, it sounds like it's a program that relies very heavily on on personal uh, relationships between the folks at Next One Up and uh, the young men you're working with. It is. You nailed it. I, I was hoping you'd say that word. Relationships over everything. You know, you can have an amazing STEM program. You can have it, you know, in terms of the curriculum, you can have an amazing college counseling program or tutoring program. But if you don't have a relationship with that student, um, the impact's not really going to be felt or seen. And I was a teacher for 13 years. Um, I, I always, you know, sort of joke, I wasn't a master educator in that, um, you know, I have, a, a, you know, multiple degrees and curriculum development and all of that. For me, it was I was mastering the relationships of my students in class. If they trusted me and respected me, then they were going to get a lot further. And so would I. And so trust, love and respect is super important for this program. And one of the the keys to it, it appears, is uh, a real strong commitment on behalf of uh, the young men and their families to the program. You don't want to take somebody who's going to, you know, dabble in it. Um, you have, I think, something called a shadow and trial period in the admission process. How does that work? We give them about a month to, you know, here's your schedule. We expect to see you here. Almost picture it like a school or anything else. Now, when they're younger, we lean on the families as well, because a lot of times if a student isn't making it, because maybe someone's not giving them a ride. So a lot of what we do is try to take care of that at the front door in, in the sense that if you're going to join the program, you have to understand the climb. Here's your commitment. So parents will sign off. The child will sign off and say, all right, I'm in. Um, so that shadow piece is really important. And for to see how that student interacts with other students, um, you know, is it a fit for him? Is it a fit for us? Um, and we're not looking for the best, brightest straight A's or the, you know, the guy that can run a four flat 40. We want the guys that have, you know, potential and guys that might be C students, but say, look, I just, you know, I haven't had the support that I've needed. So um, that that shadow and, and um, uh, you know, window of, you know, 30 to 60 day tryout is really important for everybody. And you got into this, you founded this organization back in 2009. You came, as you mentioned, from an education background. Tell me a little bit about the staff that works with these uh, with these young men. Uh, who do you recruit in that regard? Yeah, it's, you know, our staff really is a, a mix of folks that, um, one, understand the importance of relationships. Um, they have a, you know, a connection to the city. They understand what our student struggles are. Um, not all educators, um, you know, some came from various fields, um, you know, that had nothing to do with nonprofit work. Um, it's a big mix. We have an employee that was with uh, Department of Social Services, uh, another one who uh, was a dean of students at a school, another one was an attorney. Um, it's a huge mix. So really what we're looking for is people that really have coaching in their in their blood, you know, ones that can really pull a kid aside and say, hey, I saw your grades. We need to make a plan or, hey, you've been late the last three days. Let's discuss what's going on. Is there something going on at home? How can I help you get here on time? We have to understand how to approach these young men again to build that trust, love and respect. Uh, when you think about uh, over the years you've been doing this, because it's almost 15 years now, 
Um, give us an example of, of one of the kids you worked with who was a particular challenge, who, who, was, uh, who was difficult, who, who maybe didn't get with the program right away uh, and <laughs> took a little while to come around. How, how did you handle that? Oh, boy. I, yeah, we could do this for a long time, Tom. <laughs> I'm only going to give you my most recent because this is a daily conversation. And um, there's always guys I want to throttle. And then there's guys I always cheer for, um, you know, missteps and, and you know, all of that. I don't get mad at the guys as much as I hope they have learning moments. But I will give you one. On New Year's Eve, I got a text message from a young man. And it was a letter. And I read the letter and I got pretty choked up. This was a guy who I met and worked with since middle school. He's now in his 20s. Um, you know, went to high school, we supported him, paid it, you know, paid for him. He actually attended Calvert Hall and um, was an athlete there, went to college for a minute and didn't work out and got involved in, uh, you know, in a street gang in Baltimore and was making some really bad decisions. And, you know, I backed off and said, look, these guys always come back. And we kind of cut them loose. And that letter really blew my mind. The letter, um, he was accepted into the Baltimore City Fire Department. And uh, he's going to be a firefighter just like his father was in the city. And it just goes to show you, like, all these young men will have struggles in some some form. Um, but for this guy, he, you know, he it, it was being young and making some really dumb decisions. And he saw the light and, and realized that, you know, I want to have a, a better life. And that letter really got me. It was so cool to see. And that was, a you know, a true turnaround for a kid that I really thought was lost. You know, that's a wonderful story. And, of course, the fire department uh, very much in need of personnel. So they're more than thrilled to uh, to take a person who's committed and, uh, you know, get him or her the training that they need. So, you know, you have been at this for a while with 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 a long view of uh, 13, 14 years now. Uh, have 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 the issues changed? Have, have are kids changing or, uh, you know, are kids sort of uh, ever constant? I mean, obviously, the city has changed a lot in the last uh, 12 or 13 years. Uh, circumstances uh, for a lot of individuals are obviously going to be different from person to person and family to family. But overall, do you think that the the challenges you're facing with these young men uh, are similar to those that you faced when you started the program in 2009? You know, I, I hate to say it, Tom, but it's, it's become harder. And it, it hasn't, um, you know, I haven't lost any motivation or commitment as much as I realize it's become more complicated. I think the world of social media, uh, the world of phones, one thing I'll tell you at our facility, the minute you walk in that door, you turn over your phone, it gets locked away until you leave. Um, we don't want them in the building. Not that they're all troublesome, you know, the phones or the students using them, but, you know, social media has really exasperated a lot of violence. Um, as you look at, you know, not speaking to our students specifically, but the city in general um, has become a real challenge. And um, what I've seen also is, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't really tell you exactly what to attribute it to, but, you know, the, the increase in availability of guns and gun violence. We had to remove two students from our program in the last year for possession of weapons. Um, and we'd never had that problem in the first 14 years. So post-COVID world of Baltimore has become absolutely more challenging. And, you know, the, the need has never been greater for our young people. Uh, we've got a murder rate uh, and a non-fatal shooting rate here in Baltimore that is, in fact, trending downward, and we're happy about that. But juvenile crime, juvenile arrests are up this year, uh, along with certain other categories of crime. So it's the kids in particular that uh, I think are going to really require uh, the kind of attention and, and compassion and love that you're showing them. So congratulations and thanks for the work that you're doing. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Matt Hanna. He's the executive director and founder of Next One Up. The next one up for us on this Martin Luther King Day of Service edition of Midday, an Afghan and an American physician 
team up to help Afghan refugees get settled and stable in their new lives here in Baltimore. Dr. Barbara Cook and Dr. Shakira Rahimi tell us about their important work on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on the day after this Martin Luther King holiday, my guest is an author whose work is directly inspired by Dr. King. Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton is a black preacher and activist who has written a book about the intersection of the African-American church and politics. Reverend Slayton will join me to talk about the book, Politically Preaching, Why Politics Are Local to the Black church. So that's coming up tomorrow. And if you just joined us today, we are celebrating this Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service by learning about the work of people who are making a difference in Baltimore. My next guests are helping refugees from Afghanistan get adjusted to their new lives in America. Nearly two dozen Afghan families are living in and around Baltimore. And Dr. Barbara Cook, a physician who retired from Johns Hopkins a few years ago, and Dr. Shakra Atik Rahimi, an OBGYN specialist from Afghanistan, are collaborating to help those families get settled. They join me on Zoom. Dr. Rahimi, welcome. Thank you very much. And Dr. Cook, always good to talk to you as well. Well, thanks. Thanks for having us. Sure. So, uh, Barbara Cook, let's start with you. This is a program uh, that uh, comes from the Brown Memorial Ministry of Welcome, Brown Memorial Church in Bolton Hill. In full disclosure, uh, I attend that church, and uh, at the moment I'm uh, helping out with the choir at the church, so I'm very involved with various things at that particular church, uh, but not this ministry. Tell us about the Brown Memorial Ministry of Welcome. Uh, the Ministry of Welcome was founded several years ago, uh, initially in response to assisting um, uh, mostly Hispanic immigrants who were here without papers. And we have worked with Sacred Heart Church in East Baltimore um, and with the Esperanza Center to, to try to provide a welcome to these folks, um, help them get jobs, help them get settled, etc. And so um, when um, Afghanis, uh, Afghans left Afghanistan in September of 2021, uh, we were notified by the presbytery that there were a number of them who were staying in airport hotels um, because there was no apartment uh, apartments available. And um, I was called to come out and um, check on a couple of them who had medical issues. And that's how I met Chakra, who was an organizer for Luminous, uh, a refugee organization in Howard County. And Chakra Rahimi, uh, tell us how many uh, Afghan families have uh, been relocated here in the Baltimore area. Uh, in Baltimore City specifically, we uh, initially there were uh, 37, like uh, if we count as a cases, but uh, it was around 20, 22 families with kids. And there there were other um, individuals, single men also uh, resided in Baltimore uh, area. 
and and that actually adds up to um, hundreds of people, doesn't it? I mean, indivi- uh, individual people, right? When you when you yes, add them all up, yes, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. And and Dr. Rahimi, what what are the main challenges that the uh, the refugees from Afghanistan face when they come? Uh, you know, to this brand new country, uh, having left, you know, obviously difficult circumstances back home. Uh, it's challenging to start life all over again in a new country. We all know that we are the language, culture and expectation are uh, so different. And we are uh, your previous uh, education experience and qualification may not be recognized, especially uh, for Afghans uh, when they are still uh, dealing with the trauma of violence, um, threats, uh, sudden separations, and great loss. It's not easy to imagine that when uh, uh, you arrive in a new country that allowed you to come and no employer recognized your credentials, so you had to start again at the bottom of the job ladder, had to learn like not just a new language, but also an entirely different system. And many of these families, they uh, they have with uh, low education, uh, lack of uh, language, and uh, also uh, they are like large families uh, with the employment uh, and also the legal status, the language. Uh, uh, those are the challenges that they face at the um, at the beginning, even until now, because because the because the family are large and one person. Uh, like uh, working outside the family is not enough for whole family. Sure. And Dr. Barbara Cook, um, what kinds of services are you offering? Uh, what what have you organized uh, and and helped uh, the the refugees find the resources to get settled? Well, it started with the basics: food, furniture. Once they were in an apartment, then um, all of these things needed to be um, provided for them. Um, Interesting to me, uh, one of their major priorities was to have rugs cover the floor. I I didn't realize that that was such an important part of their culture. And so we've worked very hard to help them uh, obtain carpets that can cover every inch of the floor space in their in their apartments. And of course, when you enter their apartments, you take your shoes off. Um, and so they they're um, uh, it's important for them to have uh, this amenity. Um, so there's that. Then we moved on. Once those things got settled, we moved on to helping the men get their driver's licenses. We've also had classes for the women to help them get their learner's permits. We've worked on English classes immediately, uh, uh, both online as well as in person. Um, we help them go to the bank and get an open checking accounts, um, teaching them that when um, an email comes telling them they have a bill that they really do have to pay it. So they were not accustomed to doing a lot of email. And so we, we needed to teach them how to do that. We signed them up for energy assistance. We made sure that their children were appropriately placed in schools. Um, we moved one young man who's just such a star student from one public school into Poly, where he's just done extremely well getting into the National Honor Society, for example. Um, legal assistance, Shaka has been the lead on that. And then I would say that getting these folks to doctor's appointments and taking care of their children while the men and women go to see the doctor was just 
uh, huge has been a huge issue and difficult to um, to manage. And Dr. Rahimi, what is their their legal status? Uh, they've uh, you know made it this far. They've come to the United States. They're being settled in apartments. Uh, many of them are in uh, the neighborhood I live in, in, in Reservoir Hill, uh, right near uh, Druid Hill Park. But but in terms of the, the legal uh, challenges that they face, what, what are you working on in that regard? Uh, mainly, like all of the evacuees, uh, they uh, they paroled to the United States, regardless of their uh, actual status like some of them they were siv special immigration visa applicant and most of them they were just just paroled to the united states and uh, they had only the two years uh, visa for to the united states and they were they were unclear for their future and many of them based on the needs assessment that i conducted last year many of them they were uh, they were uh, expressed uh, stress for their legal status and um, fortunately uh, with the help of the community and organizations uh, we identified a pro bono uh, legal services uh, uh, through loneliness and currently through world relief to um, to afghans through the government grant and um, uh, but some of them that they they were not included in the uh, group of evacuees they came through the border they are still struggling finding uh, legal representations and dr cook in addition to uh, all of those uh, challenges um the the challenge of employment is particularly acute isn't it and and a big part of it has to do with uh, with language, if they, if they don't speak English, it's difficult to find jobs that they can uh, that they can hold. What kinds of jobs have you been able to place folks in, uh, and what are you hoping to do moving forward on the employment front? Yeah, that's just a, a, a critical issue for them. And just to to let you know, for example, one of our Afghan men was a combat medic who served for four years on the battlefield in Afghanistan. Another was an air traffic controller in Kabul, but he can't work here because he's not a citizen as an air traffic controller. A dean of a university, many soldiers. One guy ran a tire shop in Afghanistan. I mean, they're, they're, they have their own set of skills but they don't translate into employment here in this country because of the issues that you raise. So um, they are working at um, minimum wage jobs or less. I would say the lowest income that I, I or the or lowest hourly wage that I was aware of was $10 an hour, but it goes up to about $17 an hour. And when you have seven children, it's really hard to support the family on that kind of an income. I've been fortunate to work with um, the Human Resources Department at Hopkins, and they have a recruiter who speaks Dari, who is working with nine or 10 of these men to try to find a proper fit for them in the Hopkins system, which would allow them to work and also get training for um, better jobs as their English improves. Yeah, and of course, Dr. Rahimi, you speak uh, Dari and, and Pashtu, but very few people uh, here in Baltimore can serve as translators and do the kind of work uh, and, and, and be helpful in the way that you're able to be helpful. But uh, I know one of the things that you've done with uh, some of the women who, in many cases, have never been employed before, uh, you've set up uh, like a sewing uh, collective. Tell us, tell us about that and uh, how the women are taking advantage of that skill. 
Uh, many of Afghan women, they have, uh, because uh, they uh, they are not educated in Afghanistan, so the, for their families, they have uh, they have the sewing skills and using that when they sew clothes for their families inside the house. Uh, so when they came to the United States and they realized that uh, only the husband is... Uh, uh, not enough to work for whole family. Uh, they are uh, they are actually very motivated women, and they wanted to st to start uh, using their skills and uh, uh, um, and also make uh, some things and sell it in the in the outside the house in the bazaar and earn something and uh, help uh, the families. And uh, when uh, we uh, heard about their enthusiasm and their motivation, so we. Um, uh, try to have like a sewing co-op in uh, um, in the St. Francis neighborhood center, which is like in a walking distance of their apartment. And uh, the women, they, uh, and also we provided uh, some donations of uh, sewing uh, uh, material, fabrics and uh, machines. Uh, so uh, they had machines at home and they had machines in the center to, um, for the like uh, to use their skill and do some practice there and learn new skills, and uh, they were able to um, make uh, pillows and also tote bag, uh, and uh, also the in two uh, different um, events in bazaar they were able to sell uh, those uh, materials and products and uh, they made some money and they are very encouraged to do that in the future if we have uh, uh, resources for them if we have uh, events and we if we have like uh, more opportunities for them that they can start working outside the house. Yeah. And Barbara Cook, I know uh, Brown Memorial Church sponsored one of these bazaars that uh, Dr. Rahimi's mentioning where uh, the women were able to sell their goods. Um, the apartments that they're living in uh, up in Reservoir Hill near Druid Hill Park, uh, who is paying for that? Initially, the International Rescue Committee uh, uh, received government funding to supply rental assistance for several months. But after a few months, then um, that rental assistance was discontinued and people have been on their own to pay their own rent. Um, we have been really fortunate to have Evan Serpik at uh, Beth Am working with us on conditions in the apartment buildings. Um, uh, we collaborated with Baltimore Renters United in order to address broken elevators, vermin, um, broken appliances, all sorts of issues in these um, apartments that are really used to be quite lovely, but have fallen into disrepair. So um, as Evan and uh, his friends at Beth Am have assisted, we've managed to improve the conditions in the apartments um, and the people uh, have been fortunately uh, able, for the most part, to pay their rents. Yeah, and we should just make it uh, clear to folks that they are paying their own way. Uh, how do you respond to people who say, well, these people come from Afghanistan or, or any foreign country and the, they, they immediately come to the U.S. and then they're on the dole and the taxpayers are paying for them? What's your response to that kind of observation? I, I have in my life not met people who are as resilient as these folks are having left everything in Afghanistan coming to this country with a backpack and their children 
Um, they are willing to work, they're willing to do what it takes, and they show so much courage and determination um, that um, it's just silly to say that they are on the dole. Dr. Barbara Cook and Dr. Shakra Rahimi are part of the Brown Memorial Ministry of Welcome, helping out refugees from Afghanistan. Dr. Rahimi, thank you so much for this great work that you're doing. Uh, Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Cook, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, as I say, it's inspirational to uh, learn about the work that you're doing with these uh, incredibly brave people. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up, I'll speak with the Reverend Corey Barnes. He's the Director of Operations of We Our Us. It's a violence interruption group. He'll join me to talk about the work that they're doing to keep the streets of Baltimore safe as our celebration of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service continues. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to Midday. Stay with us. back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, it's the Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service edition of Midday. Every year on MLK Day, we speak with people who are making a difference in our community through the important service they perform each and every day of the year. Joining me now is the Reverend Corey Barnes, the Director of Operations of We Are Us, a violence interruption organization. That is part of Baltimore's Group Violence Interruption Strategy. Reverend Barnes joins us on Zoom. Happy New Year and welcome to the show and happy holiday. Happy New Year to you and thank you for having us. Yes. So tell us a little bit about We, Our, Us. The uh, middle middle, uh, word in that uh, title is O-U-R, We, Our, Us. Uh, What's the the inspiration behind uh, starting this group? Yes. So in... uh, 2015, many of us uh, were out in front of the police station making sure our young people didn't cross the line, and many of us didn't know each other's names, and we were just making doing. I was there with 200 pastors, brothers from the nation, community organizers were just there to make sure our young people didn't do anything that caused them to be arrested. And didn't know that in 2015, I was side by side uh, with a group of guys that I didn't even know their names, but now they we are, we are, are now a part of We Our Us. Uh, Andrew Muhammad, uh, one of the founders, and, uh, and Andrew Muhammad Knox and Dr. Andre Bunley, uh, when Catherine Pugh uh, got an office, they wanted to create an office called the African American Male Engagement Office. And we, our us, was birthed out of that office um, um, to to go out and fish for African American men, uh, you know, to uh, that are experiencing negative and destructive behavior, and that we want to bring them into positive and constructive behavior, and be begin to uh, bring them into uh, an environment that helps to change their lives with resources. 
And so We Are Was started out of the African-American Male Engagement Office with the two founders, Dr. Andre Bunley and Andrew Knox Muhammad. And from there, uh, Catherine Pugh went on, moved on, and then the office it actually be that it actually became a part of the community. So it be we are us became a nonprofit, and from being coming a nonprofit, then became a community organization, and then we continued doing the work uh, out of the office and and cre and created this resource engine uh, with that brings resources, and we have four pillars: we connect. We protect, we message, and we mediate um, in our community. And so we have been a community engagement group. And the full name is We Our Us Unity Engagement Men's Movement, that we were able to bring all the organizations and groups together to begin to have one fist to help to stop the violence in our community. And so that's what it's really been about. Many times these these our organizations would have their own individual silos. And so that's why we named ourselves We Our Us, that none of us can do it, all this work alone. But when we come together and collaborate, We Our Us, we're able to really make some real change. And so that's what, that's how the name got started. Um, those are our four pillars, protect, connect, mediate, and message. Yeah, and of course, uh, Dr. Bunley, uh, to this day, still heads the Mayor's Office of African-American Male Engagement here in Baltimore City. Um, yes. The the violence interruption, let's, let's look at, at those pillars and, and start with number four, the mediate. Yes. Um, yes. The violence interruption plan that Mayor Scott has put into place called the GVRS, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy, yes. uh, very much relies on organizations that will be what's called violence interrupters. Um, yes. can, is, is there a distinction between the way you uh, operate and you do mediations and you approach this challenge than, uh, say, Safe Streets or ROCA or some of the other organizations that are also involved in violence interrupting? I'll, I'll point out two major things that's very different. We're doing two things. We, we do upstream work and downstream work. Um, upstream work is work that's being done to prevent violence from happening. Um, downstream work is responding after the violence have happened. And we do both, uh, but one of the upstream solutions that we have is what we call the Stop the Beef Hotline. Uh, so when be before violence occurred, we have a hotline that you can call, and that hotline, and we have a group of men that will respond to that incident immediately before it occurs. And so even when we went over to Forest Park and they had the incident over there, we met with the ninth graders and we gave them a hotline. And a few of the guys have called us since then and we helped to support. Uh, so I'll stop the beef hotline have, have stopped. In 2023, we stopped over 39 beefs this year, um, just in preventive measures. Um, and so that that's that's a little different. Uh, we have a hotline. Then the second thing I will say uh, that's that's different about us is that we try what we try to do is bring resources uh, in order so that people can have. So if you, you have someone doing negative and destructive, what we try to do is move them from negative and destructive to positive and constructive. So for example, like you can't stand on a corner and work a job at the same time. So we always come 
to a place with resources. So not just telling somebody to stop doing something, we actually having resources or opportunities for them to do something different. And so that our approach is a little, a, just a little different um, than, than the other. Those organizations are phenomenal organizations that get in the fire and the heat of things. And it's really, I mean, the house is burning by the time they get in. Um, it's really, really bad. I mean, it's, tempers are flaring, guns are out. It's, it's it's amazing what they do. But we try to do a lot of work upstream. Yeah. If you just joined us, it's the Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service edition here on Midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is Reverend Corey Barnes. He is the Director of Operations for the organization We Our Us. And Reverend Barnes, uh, just last week, you had an announcement uh, about a new initiative. Uh, you and Governor Moore talked about it. Tell us about it. Yeah, we, we've been working since September with Thrive Academy, what we call the Thrive Academy. And we have 21 of uh, some of the most difficult youth um, that have had the most challenging records. And we're working with them with life coaching incredible messengers to begin to change and transform their lives. And just we've worked with them since September and since September uh, out of the 21, uh, over 30 percent of them uh, have gotten jobs so far. Uh, we have increased enrollment in school as well as we meet with them every Wednesday uh, where we're doing life plans with them and, and 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 creating their life plans and shaping their life plans so that and what they do they stay with us for one year and even though the program is only for one year they understand that when you and the we are us nucleus we are with you for life and so they they don't have to go anywhere the program is for one year but when you are part of the we are us family we are always family so yeah that's the thrive program yeah and uh, the funding that you get to uh, to implement these programs, does it come from the city, from the state, from philanthropic con- the uh, donations? The comes from the state funding, state funding, yeah, mm-hmm. which is to help the support program, yes, sir. I mean, is it a, is it a matter of uh, money that uh, is, is a barrier to scaling up your operation, to scaling up? Uh, the number of interventions you can do, the number of kids you can reach, the number of young men you can speak to. Uh, what what uh, what would you like to see moving forward for We Are Us in terms of uh, organizational capacity uh, to make a difference? Yeah, I mean, you know what? It's no secret um, that the strength of We Are Us is our mobilization. Uh, we can put 50 to 100 men in five minutes um, or in one text message and one call. So with the shortage of police and the shortage, many times we're used that way uh, to help to engage in community uh, because we have what we call our community engagement specialists. We would like that to be more incorporated and budgeted out so that I can continue to keep these men on the street uh, constantly uh, because what, what we what we learned at the curfew, and even though um, some people were disappointed that the rec centers uh, didn't get filled, but one of the reasons why the rec centers were filled was because you had community engagers out with the young people um, from nine o'clock to two a.m. in the morning, making sure they were safe, making sure sending them where they need to go, helping them get where they need to go, and that was that was our organization. We are us, and so it actually the fact that the, they didn't end up at the rec center was actually a success uh, without violence and things um, happening um, during the curfew. So 
you know, uh, the, I think we're going to need to do more of that with the shortage of police. You're going to have to have community engagers uh, that are able to mobilize groups of men uh, and with groups of credible messengers that is able to give a message just so that that inspire those and have influenced those to 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 do something different. And so I think we just got to tap into more of that. And I would love to see more resources going towards that. Yeah. And of course, you're talking about the curfew that was in effect uh, for the summer. Um, yes. Looking forward, you know, when you think about the squeegee collaborative and how that was yes. uh, targeting the kids who were doing the young, the young people who were doing uh, squeegeeing or uh, the curfew that uh, Mayor Scott implemented uh, last Memorial Day. Um, do you do you see uh, a role for We Are Us in terms of influencing the public policy that the city and the state uh, want to pursue? I mean, uh, given the expertise that you're gaining, uh, talking to these young people, working with them so closely. It was interesting the Squeegee Collaborative. Um, <laughs> so you know, a lot, a lot. Of, I don't know if you know this, but we were a part of the monitoring team, and then with the first collaborative. We were teaching and training the young people um, so that they could have jobs and be ready for jobs. But then we did monitoring. And the the problem was, this is the problem, the the, the uh, numbers of calls went down so low uh, that it pulled, it, we did, they no longer had us on the street anymore. Um, and so I don't know how we break that cycle. And now it's going up and then we get a call. So I, I just I, I really love the idea of being more proactive. I think with um, safety and public policy, we have to have proactive legislation so that so that we can change the condition of of the people that were called to serve versus reacting to crime and reacting to desperation of people's survival. But if we have proactive ways of dealing, another thing that we're dealing with, even with our Thrive young people, uh, just last week I had uh, 11 housing crisis um, where, where, where we, we get young people on track, they're doing well, and then their parents have a rent problem or something like that. And so now all that work we've done, now they back in trauma and crisis because they got put out on the street. And so, you know, we have guys putting money together, making sure that families don't go out on the street, but there's no resources for that, right? And if it is, we don't know where they are. Uh, but that's 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 the that's the problems we have. You know, it's it's gotta be a holistic approach to this. Um, so that we can move all of these uh, things together so that we can help families. Yeah, yeah, and, it's, that, and yeah. it's just so important that these young people, uh, you know, have a predictable, uh, reliable, uh, yes. credible, uh, you know, friend and advocate and, and person that's going to, you know, have their back. They got to know yes. that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And the fact that you can mobilize so many people, so many men uh, to yeah. go out there and help. Uh, is really just an amazing, amazing thing. And yeah. just it's such an important thing. And I know you were all very involved in the Brooklyn homes uh, after that yes. tragedy last summer, uh, helping that community heal. It wasn't yes. just uh, trying to prevent things, but also helping people deal with it. So thank you so much for uh, for the work that you're doing and for, you. Uh, you know, looking ahead to uh, to to continuing. I mean, obviously, the numbers here in Baltimore in terms of uh, homicides and non-fatal shootings have gone down. There's yes. a lot of people 
taking credit for that. <laughs> a lot of people talking about the reasons for that, but certainly uh, your organization, We Are Us, has got to be a big part of it. So congratulations on that, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Reverend Corey Barnes. He is the Director of Operations of We Are Us. That's it for this midday celebration of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day of Service. If you'd like to get involved in the work of the organizations that we talked about today, we'll have links to information about them on the midday webpage at WIPR.org. To celebrate the holiday, a reminder that the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture has events all afternoon and this evening, concluding at 8 o'clock tonight. Coming up tomorrow here on Midday, the Reverend Kevin Slayton talks about his new book, Politically Preaching, Why Politics Are Local to the Black Church. I'll have a conversation with Reverend Slayton tomorrow here on Midday. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Tom Hall. Enjoy the rest of your holiday.